0: Get your tickets at austintheater.org.
3: Support for AT Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World
4: Interiors. He was one of the whistleblowers against Attorney General Ken Paxton, and he says the fight is not over. Our conversation today on the Texas Standard.
5: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas. Houston Public Media and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.
4: I'm David Brown. Other stories we're tracking, what appears to be a 180-degree turn by the Biden administration as it waives environmental laws and resumes construction work on a border wall in South Texas. Also, hundreds of thousands of Texans dropped from Medicaid rolls post-peak COVID. Some wrongly so, whistleblowers say, due to errors at the state health department. We'll hear more. What could be an epic football battle this weekend, the Red River Rivalry. Are the Longhorns back for real? Also, the Week in Texas Politics for the Texas Tribune and more when we get underway right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this 6th day of October 2023. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. When the next special session of the Texas Legislature kicks into gear next week, Governor Greg Abbott says the focus will be on school savings accounts, what critics describe as a school voucher-like program that the Republican governors made a priority. But whether that will pass, even in a Republican-controlled legislature, is in serious question, in large part due to a fissure, uh, make that a yawning chasm, between the leaders of the Senate and the House. The differences exploded into the open with the House impeachment of Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton and the Senate's decision not to convict, with the head of the Senate, Lt. Gov. Dan Patrick, excoriating his colleagues on the House side and drawing into sharp relief an inner party fight between Texas's traditional, more business-focused Republicans and a far right wing of the party. But what precipitated all this coming out into the open? was Paxton's move to try to get the legislature to approve a $3 million settlement with whistleblowers who used to work in the Attorney General's office. Just over three years ago, eight top staffers in the Texas Attorney General's office reported Ken Paxton to the FBI, alleging bribery and abuse of office. Their report kicked off a political and legal fight still ongoing despite the Senate impeachment acquittal. The whistleblowers either quit or were fired after reporting their concerns to the FBI, and four of them sued Paxton for wrongful termination and retaliation. Well, the whistleblowers have not given up their fight. They vowed to expose Paxton's alleged wrongdoing by forcing him and others to testify. Blake Brickman served as Deputy Attorney General for Policy and Strategy under Paxton, and he's one of the whistleblowers involved in the lawsuit. He joins us now. Blake, welcome to the Texas Standard.
6: Thank you for having me on. I look forward to
4: talking to you. Why do you think the prosecution's case against Ken Paxton well, was successful during the impeachment uh, uh, vote in the House, but not at trial? Were you surprised by the verdict?
6: Well, your, your listeners probably know that the trial was presided over a judge, and the judge in this case was Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And the single biggest thing that happened in the impeachment trial is Lieutenant Governor Patrick protected Ken Paxton, how did he do that? He ruled that Ken Paxton did not have to testify. So, he never, Attorney General Paxton never had to take the stand, never had to answer questions about the wrongdoing that he did, and never had to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights, you know, in front of the jury, which in this case was 31 state senators.
4: Let me ask you, Blake, during the course of the impeachment trial, there were a lot of reporters covering that trial, but not a lot of blockbuster headlines emerging, um, except, of course, during the opening and closing arguments. What do you think is the strongest evidence in the case against Ken Paxton that was presented during the trial or perhaps was not presented?
6: When, When Ken Paxton in 2020 was abusing his office for Nate Paul, we knew, the whistleblowers knew, that Nate Paul was somehow involved in the renovations of Ken
4: Paxton's home in Austin. Just to be clear, Nate Paul is the uh, wealthy donor um, that, that you and others have accused uh, Ken Paxton of trying to work for, uh, essentially, right?
6: That's right. We, we knew in 2020 that he was under FBI investigation, and he has since been indicted on eight federal counts so we we knew this man nate paul was involved in the renovations of ken paxton's home we knew that ken paxton moved back into that home in july of 2020 we reported ken paxton to um, the fbi on september 30th of 2020 we notified ken paxton that we did that on october 1st 2020 and not until that happened did ken paxton make a payment on his home renovation. So, almost three months after he moved in, we now know that the payment went to a company called Cupertino Builders, which is run by a guy named Raj Kumar, who we now know is a convicted felon who has been accused of making fraudulent transfers to Nate Paul. So, the senators heard all that evidence and unfortunately, only 14 of them thought that this was an abusive office that should require Ken Paxton to be removed from
4: office. Why do you think that was?
6: I think there was tremendous political pressure put on 16 Republican senators. Unfortunately, right now in the Republican Party, there is a small but very vocal and very well-funded group of people on the far right that threaten primaries um, of Republicans. And I think that most of these Republican senators were thinking more about that than they were about the evidence in front of them.
4: The reputation of the Texas Attorney general's office has long been one that of, of many very sharp a team of very sharp uh, attorneys uh, working for the AG. I'm curious, given that you knew um, that Attorney General Ken Paxton when he you know, shortly after taking office, he was under indictment, why did you decide to work for? Um, such a person already uh, facing such charges.
6: The 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 people that worked in the attorney general's office when I was there were extremely well respected conservative lawyers. I I am a conservative Republican. The reputation of the people in that office we're talking about former Supreme Court clerks, very high level conservative legal minds mm-hmm. and. And that's why I went to work there. Unfortunately, after we were fired and other people left, the the quality of lawyer in that office has gone down significantly. But under Greg Abbott, under the first five years of the Ken Paxton um, administration, the the quality of lawyers in that office was extremely high. And that's what attracted me to being there.
4: Did you have any doubts or second thoughts about Paxton as you were working for him and before the the whistleblower uh, situation?
6: Absolutely. I mean, in July of 2020, I had a meeting with Ken Paxton where I advised him to stop working for Nate Paul. Stop talking to Nate Paul. This guy was under federal investigation. Over the course of 2020, there were many, many conversations where the most senior people in Ken Paxson's office advised him to stop doing this, and he refused to listen to us or flat-out lied to us. I mean, my office was like 10 feet away from Ken Paxson's office. We were the people in his inner circle, his most hand-picked lieutenants. And for him to go out and say now that this is some political witch hunt, this investigation started when Donald Trump was president and arose out of the allegations of Ken Paxton's handpicked top eight people. So the idea that this is somehow political is absolutely outrageous. I know that at the impeachment trial, Ken Paxton's lawyers tried to make that argument, but that argument will never fly in an actual courtroom. That would never be allowed in an actual courtroom because this has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with the rule of law and upholding it.
4: Blake, let me ask you about the settlement uh, Ken Paxton wanted the state to pay for it, and there was initially some balking. At the time, I seem to recall that, uh, I believe you were part of this, if I'm not mistaken, but many of the whistleblowers said um, that the state should um, approve the payment of this settlement. Um, was, that, was, was that right? I mean, should, should Texans um, foot the bill? for this, uh, you know, the, the taxpayers?
6: Yeah, that that's a great question. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to clean it up. There is a law on the books, the Texas Whistleblower Act, that protects public employees who make a good faith report of wrongdoing from being terminated. The way it works is when an employee is illegally terminated like we were, you file a lawsuit against the agency. So in our case, the Office of Attorney General. The people that pay for the actual judgment, like any other judgment against the state of Texas, is the taxpayer of Texas. And that payment has to be approved by the legislature. So that's how the law works.
4: So now uh, it would appear that that is off the table, the idea that the state will pay the money, or is it? I mean, if you're going on to trial, I would imagine that means the settlement's been scotched. Where does it stand?
6: Yep. So we're, we, this, the Texas Supreme Court um, ruled in our favor. We expect to have a trial in Travis County. The prior preliminary settlement is out the window. And what we think will happen is we think that we will ultimately get a judgment in our favor that will be far in excess of the $3.3 million that we initially preliminary agreed to. And let me just say this this, our case for me personally has never just been about money. I did not go to the mediation. I ultimately signed the preliminary settlement agreement only because I demanded that Ken Paxton apologize to me and my eight colleagues for calling us rogue employees. I demanded that he admit that the law applies to him, that the whistleblower law applies in Texas. We got an opinion from the third court of appeals in Austin in our favor that said, Ken Paxton, you're wrong. The law does apply to you. And we got that. Um, worked into the preliminary settlement agreement because my concern here is I don't want what's happened to me and my seven colleagues to ever happen to any public servant in Texas again in the
4: future. Blake Brickman served as Deputy Attorney General for Policy and Strategy under Ken Paxton and is one of the whistleblowers involved in a lawsuit against him. Blake, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Thank you for having me.
4: We should note that the Texas Standard reached out to the Attorney General's office for an interview. We've not yet received a response and we'll keep you posted on that. Let's bring in Wells Dunbar, social media editor. Uh, Wells, what are you seeing online?
1: Hi, David. Fascinating conversation, and I think it's captured the attention of plenty of folks out there. On our Facebook page, Loopy Casas says this about the uh, impeachment trial in the Senate. I just want to know, was it all smoke and mirrors? Charlene Abram notes that despite Paxton's acquittal in the Senate, the House's impeachment is permanent. Paxton will forever be the impeached Attorney General of Texas, even though he was found not guilty and kept in office, just like President Donald Trump. And John Strebe calls Texas politics just one big clown show. Interesting choice of words there. Speaking of Texas politics, many folks keeping an eye on the special session that's due to start Monday. We knew about education, but there's been plenty of other items added to that call. Folks are chiming in about that one and plenty other expected actions at the Capitol when that special session kicks off Monday. I'll be back with reactions to that and other stories from social media later on in the show.
4: About 35 minutes or so, Wells Dunbar will be back with more of your comments. Do you remember when candidate Joe Biden, presidential candidate Joe Biden said not another mile of wall, border wall would be built? Well, apparently he's had a change of heart in a pretty big way. And uh, we're going to be talking with a reporter in South Texas about what is transpiring. Stay with us.
5: Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas. Families can save for tuition, room and board, books, and other qualified education expenses at eligible schools nationwide. Learn more at TexasCollegeSavings.com.
4: It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Impossible, not feasible, too expensive, environmentally destructive, cruel, some of the ways that critics of former President Trump described his plans for a border wall. But if the Biden administration agrees with those criticisms, it's not acting like it. The Associated Press reports that the Biden administration has, quoting from the story here, leveraged a sweeping power employed often during the Trump presidency and waived 26 federal laws in order to continue construction on a border wall in South Texas, a project which President Biden once called not a serious policy solution. With more on this, the laws, and the reaction, AP journalist covering this story, Valerie Gonzalez. Valerie, great to have you back on The Standard.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
4: Is this a surprise that the administration is going to continue construction? I mean, on the face of it, this seems like a 180.
3: I think some people are surprised, especially those who don't live along the border, to hear about this announcement. The administration has allowed for some barriers to be Uh, built in the Rio Grande Valley prior to this so for some people along the border it doesn't come as a big surprise and as Mallorcas did say in a statement after the announcement this was part of uh, something that they had been planning for a while and and that was announced since June.
4: Does that sound right? Uh, You're talking about Mallorcas there that's the uh, Homeland Security Chief correct?
3: Yes that's correct. Alejandro Mayorkas, as the DHS secretary, uh, was the one who made the formal announcement on the federal registry. And this does seem to be apart from what the Biden administration initially set out to do on the first day in office. They halted all construction. So waiving these laws did come to a surprise for a lot of people, especially advocates along the border
4: uh what laws are being waived
3: there were 26 federal laws that were waived including protections for endangered species and the clean water act there is uh, also some of these laws will possibly affect the quality of fly for species along the border as some environmental advocates told us this is an area where ocelots, which are a protected species and it's a rare one, have a habitat and their habitat seems to be continually affected by several aspects uh, like climate change or poaching. And just overall, uh, now it seems like a a political change.
4: Yeah, we've been reporting on those uh, ocelots, in fact. Uh, Let me ask you about how the Biden administration is defending its decision. Why does the Biden administration say it's doing this? Well,
3: they are saying that these funds were appropriated back in 2019 by Congress, and they were set aside specifically for border wall construction, and therefore they must use these funds. Some border advocates, however, are pointing out that doesn't seem to track with why they're waiving uh, certain laws. Waiving these laws allows for the government to move faster on construction and not be halted by possible lawsuits.
4: I mean, in other words, the, the Biden administration could have said, no, our hands are tied. We have these laws on the books, and we're not going to waive them if that was what they chose to do. But why now? Why does the administration now seem to be moving forward with this?
3: The Biden administration has been under a lot of political pressure, but also just seeing that there has been an increase of people coming through the border In the announcement by Mallorca's uh, posted on the Federal Registry, he mentioned that there has been about 245,000 apprehensions in the Rio Grande Valley sector so far. The star counting falls within that sector, and it's a large region in South Texas. But there has been a large number of people coming in, and now the administration has been facing pressure from even Democratic cities like Chicago and D.C., where Thousands of migrants are living in crowded shelters or even in police precincts in Chicago.
4: Valerie Gonzalez is a reporter for the Associated Press based in McAllen. We'll have a link to her reporting at TexasStandard.org. Valerie, thanks so much.
5: Thank you so much for having me. Support for Coverage of Business comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a safety-focused workers' comp provider celebrating 25 years of its dividend program. More at texasmutual.com slash dividends.
4: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Texas law guarantees the right to a court language interpreter in many cases. These are people who can translate for a person who's on trial or otherwise involved in proceedings. One of the first federally certified court interpreters in Texas died recently. Stella Chavez of KERA reports his friends and colleagues are remembering him for language and artistic skills.
7: Some of the defendants whose testimony Mike Mahler interpreted were low-level drug offenders. Others, high-level members of drug cartels. It made no difference to Mahler. George Lial is an assistant U.S. attorney in Dallas. He says Mahler never looked down on anyone.
4: It's a testament to him that no matter who he was doing the translation for, he did it the same way. He was there to do a job and he did it in a professional manner.
7: Mahler died last month after a battle with cancer. He was 84. In 1970, he founded the language services company Accento and colleagues say he was still working up until recently. Mahler was one of the first federally certified court interpreters in North Texas and one of the few in the country. Nationwide, there are fewer than 1,000 federally certified interpreters. Lial, who worked cases in which Mahler was an interpreter, says it takes a special skill to do this type of work.
4: You really have to be able to tune out and tune in at the same time. It's not like the judge is speaking one sentence and then Mike is translating the subsequent sentence into Spanish. It is a constant flow of information.
7: Paul Stickney, a retired U.S. magistrate judge and former federal public defender, says Mueller never showed emotion on the job. He remembers the time a client of his testified in a large conspiracy drug trial in Dallas. Law enforcement had pulled over the defendant, who was driving an 18-wheeler full of marijuana. On the stand, the defendant said he didn't know what the truck was carrying
4: prosecutor asked him, well, what did you say when they told you it was full of marijuana? And he said, oh, F. And Mike just interpreted <laughs> into English. and Everyone had a little chuckle because it was so deadpan when Mike said it. But the witness, of course, was in Spanish a little bit more animated.
7: That professionalism went a long way when meeting defendants, Stickney says.
4: He would preface their meeting by introducing himself to the defendants and uh, making sure that they understood that he was there by order of the court, not for the prosecutor and and oftentimes for the defense lawyer, and that he was going to be fair. And they trusted him.
7: In between hearings, Mahler had a different role. He would take with him a sketchbook everywhere, especially to court. And when he was needed for interpreting,
2: he would be sketching.
7: That's Jenny Carlyle, Mahler's interpreter, coordinator and office manager. She says Mahler sketched characters inspired by people and stories in court.
3: He has a lot of sketches that he called in the
5: crazies because they have, you know, many eyes or the
7: mouth. It's not what it's supposed to be. You know, they're just crazy drawings. After hours of heavy testimony, this was Mahler's way to unwind. I'm Stella Chavez in Dallas. Support for
5: Texas Standard comes from Enel North America, powering Texas with electricity from wind, solar, and battery storage projects across the state, helping support a more resilient grid for Texans. More at enelnorthamerica.com Texas.
8: from the texas newsroom i'm matt thomas state lawmakers will tackle school vouchers border security and covid vaccine mandates when they return to austin next week the texas newsroom's julian aguilar has details the third special session of the texas legislature begins monday afternoon and governor greg abbott has asked lawmakers to pass controversial legislation that allows parents to use taxpayer money to pay for private school tuition Abbott also tasked lawmakers with passing legislation that makes illegally entering the country a state crime and authorizing local and state police to deport undocumented immigrants. If passed, that legislation will likely end up in federal courts because most immigration enforcement duties fall under the purview of the federal government. Abbott also asked lawmakers to pass legislation that bans private employers from requiring COVID vaccines for their employees. The special session begins Monday and could last up to 30 days. I'm Julian Aguilar in El Paso. The showdown between Texas Governor Greg Abbott and President Joe Biden over control of the U.S.-Mexico border continued yesterday in a courtroom in New Orleans. Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz reports the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments in the Biden administration's lawsuit seeking to have Abbott's floating wall removed from the Rio Grande. The
9: state of Texas argued in court that it's within its rights to drop a 1,000-foot string of buoys into the river near Eagle Pass to stop migration without federal permission because the barrier is only temporary. Two of the three judges on the conservative Fifth Circuit panel questioned that logic, pointing out that it would take weeks and cost $300,000 to remove the concrete anchor blocks from the water that hold the buoys in place. I'm Dan Katz in San Antonio.
8: Some nonprofit prison book vendors say Texas prison officials are blocking them from sending books to incarcerated Texans. KERA's Tolomani Osibamuo reports the vendors say the Department of Criminal Justice failed to publicly announce a new policy that leaves their businesses and people they serve in limbo.
7: At least two of those vendors say they've had packages of books meant for prisoners returned instead. They have to apply for approval, but vendors say TDCJ didn't tell them exactly how or why. Andy Chan is with the Seattle-based Books to Prisoners. He says their group has been sending books to incarcerated people since 1973.
10: There is an extreme need for educational materials, for vocational materials, for, um, self-empowerment materials for people to learn about all kinds of things.
7: The literary rights organization PEN America accused TDCJ of censorship. I'm Toluani Osibamowo in Dallas.
8: I'm Matt Thomas from the Texas Newsroom.
5: Support for these Texas headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler, Clough & Odo, exclusively protecting landowners in eminent domain cases throughout Texas for more than 40 years. More at baronadler.com.
4: It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. More than 900,000 Texans have lost Medicaid coverage since COVID-era protections ended last March. The re-enrollment process is complicated enough with lots of paperwork to complete, requirements to meet before deadlines. Well, now whistleblowers in the state health department are alleging that errors within the agency cause thousands of people to lose their coverage. Joining us to break things down is KERA's health reporter Elena Rivera. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with us, Elena. We appreciate it.
11: Thanks so much for having me.
4: What changed with the COVID era, and what 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 has happened that's caused so many people to no longer be covered?
11: So the public health emergency among other things helped people get vaccines helped folks be able to afford testing and treatment for the virus it also meant that there were some protections so that folks wouldn't lose health care so there was this auto enrollment for people who signed up for medicaid while the public health emergency was going on so if you signed up, you know, anywhere between 2020 and about 2022, mm-hmm. that meant that you were basically guaranteed to not be off the Medicaid rolls, even if in a different time period, you might not be eligible anymore. So folks who were pregnant, um, even if they had their babies, even if it was past the time where they would have been covered, they still were on the Medicaid rolls because of that those protections. I
4: see. So that ended in March and yes. uh, Texas began to clear its its rolls. Is that right?
11: Yes. So they started this renewal process. About two million people got added to the rolls within this eligibility period when the public health emergency was going on. And so not only is the state looking at, you know, kind of the normal timeline for folks reapplying and renewing every year. They're also looking at this gigantic group of folks who are doing these renewals for the first time ever.
4: So tell me what these whistleblowers are alleging now.
11: So there are whistleblowers that say they are both concerned Texans and citizens and also folks who are saying that they work in the Health and Human Services Commission, which is the state department that manages Medicaid. They are alleging that basically the department is incredibly mismanaged with a ton of IT issues and errors that are causing people to lose coverage when they otherwise would be covered. Because the state is doing such a large amount of renewals at once, basically when I talked to advocates last year, they already knew that things were going to be a mess. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of proven as Texas is the state with the largest amount of folks that have been purged from the rolls and the largest amount of people who have not been eligible anymore. The whistleblowers say that Back in May, almost 70,000 people lost coverage. Then that was reinstated in August. But, you know, three months of health coverage could mean the difference between good management of a chronic health condition and a really serious medical issue. They're also saying that just the the leadership in the department is not serious about this. Maybe not following the guidance from federal Medicaid centers in terms of how they're doing the, the process. And a lot of people are kind of getting swept up in all of the mismanagement of the department.
4: Is it known how many people might have been negatively affected by these mistakes?
11: It's hard to say. Obviously, the whistleblowers are alleging that there is, you know, these different thousands of people. They also say about six or seven thousand pregnant folks didn't get the Medicaid that they needed. It's hard to confirm this. The state health department isn't really saying anything. The whistleblowers obviously want their letters to speak for themselves and are worried for their jobs. Because there's so much data that has to be reported on this process federally, we just have a lot more data to look at than maybe usually when people are doing Medicaid renewals. And the large amount of people who are losing coverage clearly points to something not working.
4: Well, you mentioned that the state health department isn't talking about the numbers there. Have they addressed any uh remedy to the larger situation that's alleged here, that there are issues with computers and with mismanagement that's caused folks to lose coverage or not be able to re-enroll?
11: Not really. Federally, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid sent a letter to everybody who runs Medicaid in all of the different states saying, hey, we've noticed there might be some issues and we want to address maybe some kids and some families are getting knocked off the rolls by maybe some data shortcuts that might be incorrect. And so federally, it seems like they're trying to address some of the issues in terms of what Texas is saying. Not a lot. They're kind of like we're we're business as usual. But obviously, again, folks in the state are raising alarm because it's just such a large amount of people. I'm just wondering, you know, what's going to be left? This process is going to keep happening until June 2024. Will there be anybody that's still eligible by then? It's hard to say.
4: KERA health reporter Elena Rivera speaking with us about uh, a story that she's been reporting on. We're going to have a link to more at texastandard.org. Elena, thanks so much.
11: Thank you.
5: Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, exploring renewable and sustainable energy sources to power a clean energy future. Stories of research at endeavors.tcu.edu. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund. For over 10 years, helping families lock in current tuition rates and required fees at Texas public colleges and universities, excluding medical and dental institutions. fund.com
4: It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Is Texas back... In recent years, the question has been more rhetorical, if not actually a bit of a joke, much to the chagrin of Longhorn football fans. Teams had years of strong preseason showings and false starts, only to put up lackluster performances as the seasons progressed. But with a 5-0 record so far this year, it's beginning to look more and more like the Longhorns could, in fact, be back. With some tough games ahead, Fans are wondering, how long will this last? Joining us with more, Danny Davis. He covers UT sports for the Austin American Statesman. Danny, welcome to the Texas Standard.
9: Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to, forward to talking today.
4: Uh, the Longhorns had quite a season so far. That big win over Alabama, the crown jewel of that 5-0 and record so far. Uh, tell us about some of the more notable moments.
9: Yeah, obviously. Any anytime you can go into Alabama and into that stadium with a hundred thousand people booing you, and and you can record a win over a team like that, that gives you. Just a lot of reason to be optimistic for the season. And then, you know, to back that up with some good wins, going to Waco and beating Baylor, beating Kansas, a ranked Kansas team this past weekend. I mean, there's reasons why these fans are optimistic. But, you know, this weekend's coming up, so a lot more tests coming up.
4: Yeah, Yeah, this weekend is one heck of a test, too, Uh, against, uh, I believe, is it 12th ranked Oklahoma now? Is that 11th or 12th? I've seen in different polls.
9: Oklahoma's 12, uh, Texas is three in the AP
4: poll. Wow. So it's, it's going to be quite a contest, or at least it sounds like it's going to be. So what's your take? Is this something of a course correction this season compared to previous years? I mean, w- the horns have struggled in the past. Why do they seem to be doing so well now?
9: I think it's you know just kind of like with anything in life. I mean, you, Steve Sarkeesian came in in 2021. You know, it may have taken a little time for these players to adjust and get used to the C.S. Sarkeesian system, which is why there was those struggles in the first year. They made some strides last year, and this is just kind of year three with his coaching staff, with him getting his players, his recruits in the building, and I think this is kind of what Texas was hoping for when when they hired him. I mean, it was a rough beginning, and a lot of people, myself included, kind of wondering if he was the right hire, but it's kind of looking like they're heading in the right direction. Granted, they could stub their toe this weekend and it could all – go stumbling downhill quickly, but it kind of seems like this is a matter of, you know, getting Steve to run the program he wanted to run and it just took three years for that to happen.
4: So you're thinking a lot about the coaching staff settling in and finding its stride. Um, What about uh, key players? Is this an exceptional team by your reckoning?
9: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of veterans on this team. I mean, your quarterback, this this is his, you know, Quinn Ewers. this is his third year of college, second year as a starter. A lot of the key players on defense, they're veterans. You have a Jordan Winton, one of their receivers, I believe this is his fifth year, and some other you know, juniors, seniors, guys who have just been around the block for a while. There's not a lot of freshmen that this team is dependent on. There's mm-hmm. a couple who are you know, getting getting their feet wet and kind of getting used to college football. But this is a team of a lot of players who have played a lot, a lot of college football. They've been in the system for two, three years now, and so they just kind of know what's going on, and you can kind of see that. I mean, there's a difference between – juniors and freshmen playing college football. It's a completely different world, and I think Texas is reaping the benefits of, you know, guys sticking around for, for a couple of years and just playing college
4: football. So what are you watching for as the Longhorns head to Dallas for the Red River Showdown against the Sooners?
9: I, You know, this is probably the best quarterback Texas has faced this season. Texas has had a Pretty incredible run of facing backup quarterbacks the last three weeks. Uh, the starting quarterback has been injured for the opponent that they've played. But Dylan Gabriel, he's a veteran player who uh, transferred in from Central Florida to Oklahoma, actually missed the game last year, which is why it was such a blowout. I don't know if he would have made up that 49 to nothing difference, but the game would have been a lot more competitive. And so this is probably the best uh, offense this team has seen. I'm not really sure I buy into the Oklahoma defense, but I think from here on out, Texas is going to be probably favored in every game they play until the postseason. So it's just kind of can they manage expectations and you know play the way that they've been playing these first five weeks.
4: All right. I'm going to ask the question, no snickering or giggling, is Texas back?
9: I I don't know if Texas is back because they're not standing on that uh, podium at the end of the year yet, uh, holding (laughs) holding that ball. But obviously there's reasons to be um, excited about this team. I'm not going to say they're back yet because the last time that happened at Texas, I don't think people want to talk about it too much with what Sam said after that Sugar Bowl in 2018. But Texas is definitely trending trending that way.
4: Danny Davis covers University of Texas sports for the Austin American Statesman. We'll link to his latest at TexasStandard.org. Danny, thanks again.
9: Well, thanks for having me.
4: Long ago, Austin gave itself the nickname of Live Music Capital of the World. This Hispanic Heritage Month, our sister station KUTX, based in Austin, is highlighting the artists and venues that help support that claim. Jerry Quijano has this profile.
0: For more than seven decades, musician and singer Ruben Ramos has been throwing gritos and rocking across the state of Texas and beyond. To say that Ramos comes from a musical family feels like a bit of an understatement. His father Alfonso played the fiddle, and his mother Elvira was a guitar player. Her 10 brothers were musicians who, after coming back from war, formed the band Justin Perez and his ex GIs. And soon Ruben and his five siblings were fitting in wherever there was space to be had, be it behind the mic, with the sax in hand, or adding to the rhythm section those experiences allowed Ruben and his older brother Alfonso to cut their teeth in the music business. Soon enough, his brother set out on his own with the formation of the group Alfonso Ramos y su Orquesta. Ruben played drums and provided vocals for the outfit, singing songs in English as well as Spanish. Un pasito. But after another of his brothers split off into his own band, Rubén decided to join him, and soon the Mexican Revolution was born. The name came amid an emergence of Chicano and other civil rights movements in the 70s, and Rubén has said they hoped the moniker would further empower the many Chicanos across the state and the country. While Ruben's brother Roy was the one to begin the new band, Ruben would soon become the face and voice of the unit and of the Chicano music scene. By the time the 80s rolled around, the name was changed to the Texas Revolution in an attempt to cross over and appeal to Spanish and English-speaking Texas audiences. It was around this same time that Ruben released his version of a classic that would become his forever trademark nickname, El Gato Negro. Between the musical output produced with his family, his own band, and various other collaborations, it's pretty difficult to put a number on just how many albums Ramos has been a part of over the years. I mean- work with Los Super 7 a group featuring Freddy Fender, Joe Ely and Flaco Jimenez among many others earned Ramos a Grammy award in 1999 he added another Grammy to his collection in 2009 this time with The Mexican Revolution after they had once again switched up their name If you're ever out and about on the hike and bike trail near the Mexican-American Cultural Center, be sure to check out the sculptures depicting Ruben and his brother Alfonso. And to learn more about Ruben Ramos, head on over to KUTX.org. I'm Jerry Quijano in Austin.
5: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Center for Proton Therapy, offering precision proton radiation treatment for many types of cancer. More at TexasProtons.com.
10: My name is Sarah Beach, and I'm with Typewriter Rodeo. We write custom, on-the-spot poems on vintage typewriters. Music festivals. Yes, there's the heat and the dust, or worse, the rain and the mud. Yes, there's the lines and the crowds, but also there's that band whose music reminds you, you are alive and still young, or were young once, who sound better live, the guitar and the drums, the hum of hundreds of fans singing along, like church, but better because the beers, the cheers, the fear of tomorrow replaced with the thrill of today. I'm Sarah Beach with Typewriter Rodeo. You're listening to The Texas Standard.
4: The Typewriter Rodeo airs each Friday here on The Standard. You can listen to your favorite poems any old time, wherever you get your podcast. Time now for the week it was in Texas politics. Joining us, Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics at the Texas Tribune. Matthew, welcome back.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. Uh,
4: U.S. House of Representatives voted to remove House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Big, big news this week. How did Texas representatives vote?
2: Well, all the Democrats joined in with that small faction of hard-right Republicans to vote to remove him. All the Republicans from Texas, uh, all those who were present and voting, voted to keep him, which was a bit of a surprise, uh, or maybe not a surprise, but a a change in tone from from recent weeks and months where he had his critics in the Texas delegation. But even people like Chip Roy um, and some of the more outspoken critics in the Texas delegation felt in this case that they wanted to back McCarthy. They thought it was not a good idea to remove him in the middle of a big political fight. Some thought it was chaos or personal vendettas driving him to be removed. Moved by some of these Republican members. So they stuck with him in this case.
4: Very interesting. You know, with such a big story, just one of many big stories, I think there's another that has flown under a lot of people's radar. Um, Tribune politics reporter Patrick Svitek this week writing about how the upcoming special session will likely cause another delay in the trial of state representative Frederick Frazier, indicted on felony charges over a year ago. Remind us, what uh, what what's the story with Frazier and what's he accused of?
2: Right. So Frederick Frazier, a Dallas police officer who represents McKinney, was accused of pretending to be a McKinney code officer and ordering some people to take down some campaign signs in a previous election. Oh. That is a um, impersona- impersonating a public servant, a third degree felony. Um, and his trial has been pending for later this year. But Lawmakers, both in civil and criminal cases, are allowed to request what's called a legislative continuance, which allows them to delay proceedings in a court case until 30 days after the legislative session. We, of course, have had quite a few legislative sessions this year, the regular and then some special sessions, another one coming up later this month, and that has allowed him to continue to delay this case and, and, and push back his trial.
4: So uh, is it known exactly how, uh, when that trial might get underway or, or still no word on that?
2: Well, so we are in a situation now where there's a special session beginning October 9th. Right. Uh, that can last up to 30 days, and then you would get another 30 days after that. I see. But of course, there's no guarantee that they will pass a school choice bill in this special session. There could be more and more, could be which called would allow back. to deliver it more and more. Yeah,
4: right, right. right. Uh, let me ask you about this story involving Congressman Henry Cuellar, the victim of a carjacking near his Washington home this week. He was all right, and I understand his car was uh, retrieved, recovered. That's right. For- uh has law enforcement released any other details of this incident
2: so not much there were three armed suspects um wearing ski masks he they did it while he was parking his car he was able to recover his belongings and things like that but no information no arrests anything else like that so far
4: why did this get so much attention
2: I don't know. You know, there's a lot of attention right now around crime in cities, especially in Washington, D.C. Um, it's a it's a big political issue. And when it happens to such a high profile person, I think it really sort of strikes the imagination of folks as we have this kind of broader conversation about crime and its roots and its causes.
4: You can check out these stories and a whole lot more over at Texas That's where Matthew Watkins is managing editor for News and Politics. Matthew, thanks so much. Thanks. Have a good weekend. You too. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is our social media editor, and he's been monitoring what Texans have been talking about over the past hour or so. Wells, what do you see
1: Yes, sir. Well, we're hearing from plenty of folks about uh, one of the topics we tackled earlier. That would be this uh, somewhat surprising announcement on the half of the Biden administration that they were waiving, uh, yes, dozens of um, uh, federal um, uh, requirements to expedite construction of a border wall in South Texas. On our Facebook page, Jaime Solarza uh, says the issue is not it's not good at all uh, for the Biden administration. Meanwhile, Caroline Estes is uh, even more upset. She says that Democrats have stabbed us in the back with the with this restarting working on the wall what the heck are they thinking she says i suddenly feel the need to vote third party and i am a loyal democrat adding she's furious that the two-party system no longer works. So yes, uh, a shocking turn of events uh, for many folks, including, um, yeah, as you noted earlier, uh, folks that were watching President Biden's words uh, far earlier that uh, yes, not, not another uh, mile of the border wall would be built under his watch as president. So uh, uh, many folks registering their displeasure with this development. Many folks sounding off too about that upcoming special legislative session. The governor, uh, uh, of course, uh, issued uh, uh, the the call for it for it to begin about a week or so ago last night issuing the items on the call uh, leading the way so-called education freedom and that would be those uh, um, uh, spending accounts uh, that critics have uh, dubbed vouchers uh, that would allow for public uh, dollars to uh, pay private tuition but also added to the call several items related to border security uh, ending covid restrictions further codification of uh, the of um uh, prohibiting COVID-19 vaccine man- vaccine mandates by private employers, and additionally, an item dubbed public safety regarding uh, issues related to environmental quality property ownership in areas like the Colony Ridge development in Liberty County, Texas. This has been a little bit of a... Um, uh, cause celebre on the right there mm-hmm. with many folks saying that uh, folks in the country without proper authorization have been encouraged and it has been made easier for them to live in some of these public developments so the governor looking to act on that apparently As well, Angela Cobb Kaiser uh, says the special session starts Monday. Whether Republican legislators will listen to their constituents and support public education or whether they will bow to Abbott's threats is on her mind. She says, sadly, I am not optimistic, referring there, yes to the governor's previous um, uh, accounts, saying that he would uh, support the primary uh, primary process against Republican legislators that do not support uh, the school voucher program. The governor is getting behind. So, yeah, temperature definitely rising there in the Capitol, not to mention, as we alluded to earlier, this tension between the House and the Senate. So it's going to be a really uh, interesting one to watch on Monday. Wayne Tubbs uh, adds at least that cold front is coming. So things should cool off a little temperature wise uh, throughout much of the state before then. But, yeah, going to be a fascinating week ahead of us, David.
4: Indeed it will. We're going to be all over that story, Uh, you know, at the uh, story of the legislature reconvening for special session. Wells Dunbar monitoring the talk of Texas. We're out of time. Keep up the news 24-7. TexasStandard.org. We'll talk again on Monday.
5: Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com.
11: You've been listening to The Texas Standard. Texas Standard and KUT Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find a lot more great content and shows like The Texas Standard in the NPR Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: Do brain games really make me smarter? What is all this screen time doing to my brain? How do I protect my brain as I age? Find the answers to life's most and least pressing questions about your mind with the Two Guys on Your Head podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.